0: Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as you could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, "Away with him." As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Welcome, beloved, this
1: Lord's Day morning. As we continue our exposition in the book of Acts, John read, um, just to the beginning, of chapter 22. We'll cover the entirety of the chapter, 22, from 27 down through chapter 22. It's Paul's testimony. I'll touch on it as we work our way through. But first, um, let's go before the Lord in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we um, ever dependent upon your spirit um, as we are. We sit here this morning um, expecting certainly to hear from you. So Lord, I ask uh, by the presence of your spirit, you'll enable me To declare this, your gospel truth, to these, your saints, your people, give us ears to hear. For the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we followed the Apostle Paul from Caesarea into Jerusalem. Met as he was by James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem. Paul, remember, had an offering for that church collected from churches in Macedonia and Achaia, places like Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, as well as Galatia and and, uh, Ephesus. Paul was always hoping to unite Jew and Gentile Christians So he brings this offering from a populace made up mostly of Gentile believers, so the offering had somewhat of a Gentile face on it, to bring it into the struggling church of Jerusalem. Um, Once he arrives, um, sadly, Luke makes no mention of the offering, nor does James um, or the elders, um, not a word of thanks Uh, but instead what looked like a, a preconceived plan on the part of these elders. Now, Paul mentions this offering in chapter 24 when he stands before Felix, but we don't hear about it here. But these elders suggest that Paul pay for the expenses of four Jewish believers who are under a Nazarite vow. We looked at that last Lord's Day. Meaning that when the vow ended, his sponsorship of these four was for him, the Apostle Paul, 27 years after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus, to pay a lamb, a ram, grain, and drink offerings on the altar. Now, we asked last Lord's Day, was that Paul being gospel flexible or was that a case of gospel hypocrisy? That was, up for, that was for you to discern um, according to all that we had considered last week. But to summarize the situation, Paul enters Jerusalem. There's great celebration, great celebration over all that the Lord had done. Through Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean world. And then there was a concern. That is, circulating rumors concerning the Apostle Paul, who was accused of teaching Jews to forsake Moses, for Jewish Christians to forsake Jewish ceremonial. Laws. That was their concern. So, for the sake of these Jewish Christians who we read were very zealous for the law, they said, Paul, we have, we have an idea. Okay, here's our plan do this sponsor these four men under a Nazarite vow, pay the offerings at the end, and it all backfires. Well, in the temple, Paul is falsely accused, he's accosted, he's dragged and beaten by Christ-rejecting Jews who are actually trying to murder him, and then he's arrested. (laughs) He's arrested by a tribune of Roman soldiers, okay? So the question is, 2,000 years later, what do we make of it all? And that's what we're after this morning. What do we make of it all as Christians living 2,000 years later, Paul experiencing such persecution like this? Okay, That's the question. Hang that in your mind, and we'll work through the text together this morning. Amen? All right, there's your introduction. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, okay, that is... The purification ritual that that Paul um, agreed to. The Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So here are some Jewish perpetrators from Asia, perhaps Ephesus. Remember, that's where a riot broke out. When Christians coming to faith basically put out of business certain silversmiths in the town when they had no longer had anyone to purchase their little silver trinkets, their little idols. That's what Christianity does, right? You come to faith in Jesus Christ, idols die. And it created a riot in Ephesus. So here, these are Jewish perpetrators. Those were Gentile perpetrators. They recognize him in the temple, and they also recognize Trophimus, who, by the way, was from Ephesus, and he's one of the nine that has been traveling with Paul for the last few years. So they see them together in the temple. They jump to the conclusion that Paul had taken Trophimus into this temple, and he was a Gentile, verse 29. So notice they, they, they accuse him of teaching against the law, against this temple, and bringing Greeks into the temple area reserved for Jews only. Lies, lies, and more Lies. This is anarchy in the temple. Anarchy in the temple, that's the title of the message, and such is the Christian life, beloved. To live a true Christian life by the resident presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, declaring the whole counsel of God, declaring that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, which isn't offensive to most, but the last part of Jesus' sentence and no one comes to the Father except through me, that is an offense. That will create a stir. Because the world hates Jesus. Okay, and I'm talking about the biblical Jesus. Not the the Galilean hippie that people have in their minds who goes around hugging everybody. I'm talking about the biblical Jesus. They hate him, and they hate his gospel. Therefore, declaring Jesus Christ alone is the way... To the Father is the only way of salvation. We can expect attack from the world. Amen? We don't need to go looking for trouble. That's the last thing I want to do is look for trouble. But just declaring this truth creates trouble. Here he is again. So let me set the scene here, the temple courts. Uh, it, this was a large um, open area Um, equivalent to about three football fields placed side by side. That's big. Equivalent to about three football sides the temple courts here in Jerusalem. Now, Josephus, the historian, um, he describes a wall, a freestanding wall, three to four feet high um, in the temple courts there um, that separated... Gentiles, the, the court of the Gentiles from uh, the, the temple courts proper, where only Jews were allowed. And we read in history that every few feet, there were signs written in Greek and Latin that any Gentile to proceed past this boundary will receive immediate violent death. Imagine the temple courts. Now, although Paul had never taken a Gentile um, into the holy place, this mob was convinced that he did. Verse 30, then all the city was provoked. All the city was provoked. And the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately, boom, the doors were shut. So here again, we have mob rule. Fanatical zeal always equates to mass confusion. They shut the gates. So the Jews, behind all of this, they they incite the crowd. This is quite likely a massive crowd. We believe it to be the time of Pentecost because that indeed was the time in which Paul wanted to arrive with this offering. So there's a mass population of people present here. Now, this idea would have been sacrilege to the Jews for a Gentile to enter into the court of the Jews, blasphemy, an abomination if you will, but the only abomination are the people who reject Christ, that's an abomination, so they see this Gentile um, as an abomination, this sacred place, even though there's no basis for the charge here, this is what Paul is up against, trouble followed that brother wherever he went, (laughs) amen, sold out, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul, remember, he's always trying to appease tension between Christians that are Jew and Gentile. He wants to bridge the gap. He wants to break down the wall, so to speak. And, and that's why he, he, I believe, is the reason he sponsored those four Jewish men under a Nazarite vow. He loved the church. He loved the Lord's church. Why does he love the church? Because he loves the Lord. Don't say you love Jesus if you don't love his church. You can't love Jesus if you don't love what he loves. And he loves his bride. He loved, he loved her. That's why Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, Jesus Christ, who is our peace, has made Jew and Gentile what? What? One. One breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is no doubt in my mind that he uses that metaphor with the picture of that freestanding wall that separated Gentiles from Jews in, in, in the courts of the temple here. The dividing wall of hostility. It's been broken down in Christ. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are one in Christ. Truly then, truly now. So here you have these these Christ-rejecting zealots. Um, Everything for them was, was temple, Torah, and tradition. All of that which pointed to Christ, they reject Christ, so it's all about the Torah, it's all about the temple, and it's all about their traditions. Paul, to them, is an apostate to Judaism. They hate Christ, so they hate Paul. They want him dead. So they drag him here into the court of the Gentiles. They close the gates. Why? To protect any of his blood from flowing in to holy territory. That's why. They close the gates. They want to beat him to death. Such is the mindset of religious lunacy, friends. What did Jesus say? Look at it. John 16 verse 2, an hour is coming, look at it, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Now the slammed gates of verse 30, that symbolizes for us the final Jewish rejection of the gospel Of Jesus Christ. You don't read about someone entering and preaching the gospel here again after what we'll read about here this morning. Verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, there was here um, 1,000 soldiers garrisoned in the fortress Antonia right here, in, in the, 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 the uh, Gentile courts. It was built in 35 B.C. by Herod the Great, paid for by Mark Anthony, hence the name Antonia, the Antonia Fortress. And it was built all the way up to the line where the Gentile courts began here at the temple. And it had towers. It had towers overlooking the Gentile court. And there was a stairwell that came right into the square. So that's the scene. And then here in verse 32, notice, at once he, the commander, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, of course they did. right? When the police show up, what, what does everyone do? They put their hands behind their back. I didn't do nothing. So they stopped beating Paul, and then the commander came up, took hold of him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Agabus' prophecy, chapter 21, fulfilled right here. You remember when Agabus came out? He took Paul's belt, he tied up, he bound his own hands and feet, and he says, thus says the Lord, the man who owns this belt will also be bound in Jerusalem. And they tried to convince him not to go. Here, prophecy fulfilled. And what do we see here? God's providence once again in preserving the life of Paul. Bound. Not by the Jews, but by Roman soldiers. It's beautiful. I just love it. Providence of God. Verse 33, he, this commander, inquired who he was and what he had done. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So here you have all this undiscernible shouting. Nobody knows anything, and that's mob mentality, right? When you see on TV people flipping cars and burning stuff, and they're just shouting, half of them don't even know what they're shouting. (laughs) Things have not changed. So here they are. You have emotions running at full speed. Their brains are in neutral. They rant and they rave and they presume on the basis of their prejudice. Filthy Gentile brought in by this apostate former Pharisee into the holy courts. That's an abomination. No, you're an abomination for rejecting Christ. And the violence is so bad Notice, with hundreds and hundreds of Jews up in arms, the violence is so bad, the soldiers have to pick the brother up and carry him right here to the safest place in Jerusalem, a Roman fortress. Notice, through it all, through all of the upheaval, false accusations, the beating, the dragging, the the mob mentality, notice, Paul doesn't say a word. He doesn't scream, this isn't fair. We do not hear him say, I'm a victim of intolerance. Oh, huh. someone looked at me wrong. You're prejudiced. Not Paul. The multitude of the people, verse 36, kept following them, shouting, Away with him. Away with him is a Hebraic way of saying, kill him. Kill him. You know, it was in this same spot that Jesus, 27 years earlier, turned over the table of the money changers. He, he bent over and he made a cord of whips with his own hands and he laid it on the backs of the money changers. Not the animals, and the backs of the money changers. And he chased them out. Same spot. And in another spot, nearby, at our Lord's own trial, another crowd shouted out, what? Away with him. (laughs) If they persecuted me, will they not also persecute you? They persecuted the master, and now they persecute Paul. Away with him. So here now, the disappointed mob Robbed of their prey, they push, they shove, they scream the same words that they screamed about our Lord Jesus Christ. The same accusation, my friends, he's blasphemed this temple. Remember that? Notice verse 28. He preaches against this place. Paul is preaching against the temple. When Jesus, the true temple of God, came, they accused him of the same thing. At Jesus' trial, they said this. In Mark chapter 14, verse 58. We heard him say, we were there, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Referring to what? Referring to what he did Back in John 2, at the outset of his ministry, three and a half years before his trial, Jesus went into Jerusalem at the time of Passover, turned over the tables, and then they asked him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? For turning this place upside down, what sign do you show us? He goes, what sign? I'll tell you what sign. Tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. That's the sign. Speaking about? His body, the temple of the living God. See, to the Jews, Israel, in their mind, was central to the nations, central to the world. The temple was central to Israel. The temple was central to everything in their minds. Yet Israel, the center of the world. Jerusalem, the center of Israel. Within Israel, you have the temple, central to all things. So any negative words regarding the temple meant blasphemy and death. In case you don't know, most of you... If you're a member here, you know this, but friends, in the Old Testament, everything, all those signs and all of those sacrifices and all of those festivals and all of those feasts in the temple itself pointed forward to the temple of Almighty God, Jesus the Christ. So once he came and provided propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, all of that was done away with, fulfilled. You get the picture? Done. That's why he said it is finished on the cross. Don't be looking for some rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. You're looking in the wrong direction. Hello? That would be blasphemy. Both Jesus and Stephen, by the way, remember when Stephen was stoned? What were they accused of? Blaspheming the temple, speaking against the temple. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, the curtain that separated the holy from the most holy place was torn asunder from the top to the bottom. Okay, what's that a picture of? That the Levitical priesthood and the temple are now what? Obsolete. If you were in Sunday school this morning, Matthew read from uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 says this. Look at it. And speaking of the new covenant, speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one what? obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and it's ready to vanish away. It was as good as dead when Jeremiah prophesied about the new covenant. And God graciously gave these Jews 40 years before he ultimately And utterly terminated the priesthood and that temple. And praise God, he did. Never has it been or will be in operation again. Because as I said, that would be utter blasphemy. Obsolete. Forty years to repent. Grace. Upon grace. Grace. Verse 37, now as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, uh, may I say something to you? He said, you know Greek? Now he's, he's surprised about his Greek. And, and mind you, friends, he doesn't just mean, oh, you know the Greek language. What he means by what he says, he goes, ooh, you speak good Greek. Polished Greek. So, therefore, verse 38 is why he says, oh, then you're not the Egyptian. (laughs) You're not the guy who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. I thought you were him. (laughs) But you can't be him speaking Greek as you speak Greek. Hmm. Now, he's referring to an incident that happened some three and a half years or so prior to this event. There was an Egyptian Jew who uh, this man was wanted by the Romans because he brought together um, a bunch of assassins. He took on a kind of messianic role for himself. What did Jesus say? Many will come in my name. He's one who came in his name, so to speak, declaring to be a Messiah. They were camped out on the Mount of Olives And the threat was that the walls of Jerusalem will fall just as they fell in Jericho. So Rome, obviously, um, they respond, and history records that many died during that event, but this Egyptian escaped the scene. So here, this commander assumes Paul to be this Egyptian until he hears him speak sophisticated Greek. Paul replies, no, I'm actually from the opposite direction. I'm from Tarsus. Verse 39, Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, mind you, sir. Prominent because of its political, um, economic, and intellectual life, and remember this, in times of antiquity, um, people's importance was largely based on where they were born. So Paul makes use of this, I'm from Tarsus, and this will be used by him as a tool to prove his credentials as a Roman citizen, which is very crucial for him, and how he will be able to proceed to his ultimate goal, and that was to make it to what? Rome. And he'll be able to do so by way of pulling this card, and he just trumps them right here, as we'll see. I'm a Roman citizen. We'll see that next week. Amen? Very strategic, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Friends, who determined where Paul would be born and why? God Almighty, Almighty Sovereign God who in his vast omniscience discerned at this point, I should say determined, not discerned. God determines. He doesn't discern. He doesn't need to discern. He's sovereign. God determined in eternity past he would be born here because at this point in the apostles, Paul's life, it will be very useful for the sake of what? God's gospel, which is unstoppable. Guess what? Today, the gospel is what? Just as unstoppable. You feel opposed, you feel mocked, you feel rejected for believing and declaring Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, his gospel is unstoppable. Fret not, my little fretlings. Amen. 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 Fear not. So, Paul being born in Tarsus was not an accident, no coincidence, no coincidence. Nothing's accidental with God. Reminding us once again, by the way, the amazing condescension of Almighty God when Jesus came to this earth. He wasn't born in Tarsus. He wasn't born in Alexandria. He wasn't born in Greece. He wasn't born in Rome. He was born in Nazareth. A place of disrepute. What what good thing can possibly come out of? Nazareth. Wow. The one, who, we read it this morning, the one who, who, who called the universe into existence, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus who became the Christ, was raised, he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Let me correct myself. Born in Bethlehem, according to the scriptures, raised in Nazareth. Because I said born, didn't I? Verse 39 I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him his permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. So he, trans, he transitions from Erudite Greek into the Hebrew dialect, which would have been Aramaic, um, the language of the people, saying things that they would understand. This is incredible. Okay, Paul, he's about to lose his life, and the next minute he does this. And there's a dead calm where there was just minutes ago a riot. That's amazing. Once again, showing us who's in control, and guess what? It's not Paul. It's God the Holy Spirit. He's in control of the scene. Of the situation. And notice the Apostle Paul is given the steps of this Roman garrison as his speaking platform. That's quite a pulpit. Overlooking the courtyard of the temple, here is a man prepared for the attack of the world. Now he's prepared to address the world. He begins preaching and he begins with his testimony. It's remarkable. Speaks about his background. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a very reputable um, um, Pharisee in the day. His grandfather, I think, was Hillel. Speaks about his zeal for God. I was zealous for God. You remember what Paul wrote to the church in Rome about Jews having a zeal for God, but not according to what? Knowledge. There's a lot of people today who have a zeal for, for God but not according to knowledge. Muslims, they have a zeal for God. He's no God. It's not according to knowledge. We can consider Jehovah's Witnesses today and Mormons today who have a great zeal for God for what, who they think is God but he's not God. It's a different gospel. It's a different God. Small g. But zealous, Paul says, I was a zealot. In verse 6, he talks about his conversion, chapter 22. Now, this is the second of three recordings of of Paul's conversion. We studied the first one back in chapter 9. There's this one, and then we'll read it again in chapter 26. So I'm not going to go through it in detail. I just want to touch on some high points. Notice... I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, verse 3. I persecuted this way, that is, I persecuted the church unto death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, verse 4. I also relieved, received letters from the high priest and the council. So I started off towards Damascus, verse 5, but, verse 6, it happened. I was on my way approaching Damascus, and about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground, right? He's like a dead man. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, me. You touch my church, you touch me. Ah, uh, who are you, Lord? I said. The Lord responded, get up, go into Damascus, verse 10, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Now, I could not see verse 11. He was blinded, remember, for three days. But verse 12, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout, he was sent to me. He said, Brother Saul, verse 13, receive your sight. Brother Saul, verse 16, get up and be baptized. Verse 17, it happened when I ended up returning to Jerusalem and went into the temple and I fell into a trance. Verse 18, I saw him, that is the Lord of glory, saying, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. I said, verse 19, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And, verse 20, When the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. If you want to throw stones, you've got to take off your coat. There, at the feet of one named Saul. Now, 27 years, well, 27 years after the resurrection of Christ, probably 20 years After the stoning of Stephen or thereabout, he's now the Apostle Paul being persecuted for the name of Christ. So this is a stunning, notice, flawless defense, gospel declaration, how he persecuted those of the way. Now all the pressure is on them to make a judgment about God, the God they claim to love, the God they claim to know. Now, notice through verse 20, they have listened intently without any apparent uproar. But notice verse 21. And he said to me, that is, the Lord said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. When he mentions Gentiles, it trips a trigger in their mind and their corrupt hearts of hatred and prejudice. So all logic, all reason, all sound Old Testament Doctrine was consumed here in the flames of prejudice. Israel was to be a light, Old Testament, to to the nations. That was always God's intent, to reach the nations with the gospel. Was the gospel present in the Old Testament? Yes, in shadowy form, absolutely. It's come, the fullness is here, it's Christ And Paul has been out ministering to the Gentile nations as instructed by his Lord, Jesus Christ. And when he makes mention, he shouldn't be allowed to live. Wow, that's that's the scene. That's the account. So 2,000 years later, what do we make of it all? Okay, and that's what we'll spend the rest of our time um, considering this morning. Amen? You got that fresh in your mind? First thing to understand with regard to Paul is that no catastrophic thing can possibly happen to him. No spiritual catastrophe can possibly overcome Paul. That's the first thing. The second thing is the gospel, as I've said throughout the service this morning, it is unstoppable. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Not possible. They will not overpower it. So do we need men in our day with their manipulative tactics to get people into assembly like this and entertain them because we've got to trick them to believe in Jesus? No, that's nonsense. Thank you. I'll build my church, said Jesus. Just preach my word. Preach the gospel, preach the whole counsel of God, and I'll gather in my flock. They're mine, they're not yours. I'll gather them in. As we noted earlier in the the life of Paul, the last couple, two or three weeks, even Paul's friends did not understand the path in which he was carrying out his gospel call from Jesus Christ. Remember, they were pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem because danger awaits you there. Don't go, Paul. Paul. But determined as he was to face not only arrest and prison, he was ready to face death itself. Why? Because nothing catastrophic can possibly happen to God's people. Don't think of this life and the things that may happen to you as catastrophic. We'll see what true catastrophe is in just a moment. Amen? See, in Philippians 1 and verse 21, Paul wrote this, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Gain. Now, when we lose a loved one, it's tragic. We we suffer, we grieve, we cry. But if they had the chance to come back, they wouldn't consider it for a moment. Amen? So we have to remember that. That's the tension of, 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 of a Christian I'm dying. That is their body dying because we'll never taste death. Now, Paul wrote that letter from where? Prison. Prison. And in verse 12 of that same passage, he said this, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. First down. Arrested. First down. Right? Thrown in prison, first down, beaten with whips, first down, beaten with robs, first down, shipwrecked, first down. Moving towards the end zone of a new heaven and a new earth. It's unstoppable. By the end of Paul's life, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, most of those who stood alongside of him had what? They deserted him. And all the while, we read that God advances the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 9, 2 Timothy, his last letter. Bound with chains, I am like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. It's not bound. You can't bound the word. You can shut me up. Tie me to a post or burn me like they did many of the Puritans. The gospel You can't stop it because it's his. He builds his church. See, it didn't matter what happened to Paul because the word of God continued to spread. The kingdom of God continued to come. The kingdom of God continued to spread. It's still coming. It's still increasing. It's still growing right now, this morning. But our nation, oh, great America, so what? Nations come and go, beloved. Babylon's come and go. America is nothing. Compared to the sovereign will and work of God spreading the gospel worldwide. Amen? Amen. So we've been granted a couple hundred years to be able to do that freely. Glory to God. Now, we're reminded through this, this great hero of faith, the Apostle Paul, that heroes are usually admired from a distance. Are they not? Usually from a distance because when they're doing the work that makes them a hero, most people think, ah, that looks too costly. That even seems foolish and very dangerous. Witness? Come on, somebody. Amen. Amen. Just read Hebrews 11. Seems like they're crazy. So Paul, he considered himself as a doulos, right? A slave of Christ. A slave of Christ. So as a slave, this man is the freest person in the world. Nothing mattered to Paul except serving Christ, my king. I'm his slave. Hero of the faith. So he therefore could proceed to Jerusalem knowing That chains await him, but ultimately, his life is in the hands of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. My life is in his hands. It's no different for you or me, beloved. Now, apostles, we are not. Slaves of Christ, we are. Yes, we are. If you're purchased by the blood of Christ, you're a slave of Christ, whether you like it or not, if you don't like it, you better get to liking it. Because you're going to be with him forever, and he, he redeemed your soul so that you could be with him forever. So get to liking it. And if you don't like it, because I don't like all the suffering, I don't like being laughed at, I don't like being mocked, join the club. I've been called a Pharisee, I've been called everything in the, under, under the sun for declaring the whole counsel of God. So if you're fearful, pray to God. Go to the source. Lord, I need what I don't have, and it's courage. We too can be certain that our life rests in the hands of Christ. And the gospel's unstoppable to this day. Now, this isn't something we come to grips with overnight. Amen? You just don't roll into church on Sunday like, oh, everything clicks now right? And and I admit it myself. This doesn't happen overnight. This is after years and years of loving and serving Christ, the one who loved us, what? First. So don't walk out of here saying, well, I'm not all that I should be or could be. Well, nor am I or anyone else sitting in this room next to you. Amen? Amen? No one has arrived yet. Paul hasn't even arrived yet. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago that the Lord told him not to what? fear. Why? Why did the Lord say, fear not, Paul? Because he was fearful. Getting beaten for the gospel never gets fun. Never gets to be fun. Oh, yeah, they're going to beat me for the Lord. Right? Not with Paul. Very realistic brother. So, if the enemies of God raise their voices against you, beloved, and they say, verse 22, away with him, away with her, you shouldn't be allowed to live. When it happens, if it happens, question, what can finite enemies of God possibly do to you? That's the question. What did Jesus say? Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, look at it on the screen, do not fear, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's only one person who can do that, almighty God. And Jesus bore the punishment of hell in your place. Therefore, you'll never taste, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be, Christian. Did you know that? This is as close to hell as you will ever be. If you're not a Christian and you never become a Christian by the grace of God, this is as close to heaven as you will ever be. Repent and entrust yourself to the finished work and worth of Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life that only he could live. He did it in the place of sinners, all who have ever or will ever believe. Repent. Turn from your foolish thinking, turn from your folly, turn from your false religious ideals, and turn to Christ, and you shall be saved from the wrath of God in Christ. And this, then, will be as close to hell as you'll ever be. So therefore, in Christ, Paul never will, nor will you, possibly taste what we would call spiritual catastrophe. They can't touch you. So, beloved, if you're in union with Christ, okay, if you're a Christian, you are in union with Christ, and you're going to share in his resurrection, which means you're going to share in his glory. But let us not forget, as believers in the here and now, we also share in his what? His life. That is his suffering. Thank you. What was his life like? Well, we read recorded in Mark chapter three, verse 21, that his own family thought him to be out of his mind. you remember that when we went through Mark? Let's go grab him because he's a nut job. That's what they thought. You remember the brothers weren't believers yet. James, the leader of the church here in Jerusalem, who had this great idea, and I believe it was a pure thought and pure intent, He wasn't saved then. That's Jesus' half-brother. He wasn't saved then. He didn't believe then. Others said Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. Oh, and by the way, he casts out demons all right. We don't doubt that, but he does it by the power of Beelzebub. And finally, they said, away with him, crucify him. And after that, He's hanging on, remember before he goes to the cross, his his disciples what? Abandoned him. They, They abandoned him. Jesus was spat upon, he was mocked. Friends, you share in things like that when you share in Christ. But the gospel can't be stopped. And you'll never suffer spiritual catastrophe because you're in Christ So the reality of the Christian life is this. You don't have some and not the other. You don't get resurrection and glory and not participate in his suffering. You can't have some and not the other, contrary to what the fools and the heretics of the prosperity gospel proclaim. It's nonsense and foolishness. God doesn't want you to suffer. He never... What, what is that in first or second hesitations? Where do you find that? <laughs> as soon as you're in union with Christ, Paul tells us, as we looked at earlier this morning, Colossians 1:24, look at it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's talking about the church. I, for your sake, the church of Colossae. Um, and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does he mean? We touched on it a little bit earlier this morning, but let me say this. What Paul is not saying here is that the redemptive sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross are somehow deficient, and then by way of our suffering, we make up for it. We fill in the gaps. He does not mean that. So what is lacking in Christ's affliction is not propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. It's not propitiation, but it is, I believe, presentation. Presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to suffer as we carry out this glorious gospel message. Now, in the Lord's Olivet Discourse, our Lord preached that the gospel will go on to the nations, but he goes on as you listen to his teaching that it will spread to the nations by way of a rather bleak description that's full of woes. Do you remember? He said this. False prophets will arise. Now this commander in Rome thought Paul was one of these false prophets who returned to Jerusalem. False prophets will arise, lawlessness will increase, and the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. So although cold people don't finish the Great Commission, the Great Commission will run its course in spite of them to the end so those woes, by the way, in which Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse, the context of which he was speaking was that all, that all of that would occur in 70 A.D., a mutilation of upward of a million people, destruction of the temple. And that, what happened in 70 A.D., and all these slaughtered people, slaughtered saints from throughout time characterize for us the entire period between the first advent of Christ and his second coming. And it's described for us in Revelation 6. So take in just a little more. I'm almost done. Look at it. Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. So as you read the Revelation, we're giving pictures um, through The vision given to John about happenings down here on earth, how the church is suffering. And all of a sudden, you're taken up and you're given a vision of heaven. So he's given this vision, notice, and we read, I saw under the altar of souls, under the altar, the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Earth dwellers in the book of Revelation simply means unbelievers, enemies of God. How long? Then they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be what? Who were to be killed, that is according to the preordained plan of God, as they themselves have been. Again, we raise the question, well, God allows it to happen. Question, is there anything that God allows he hasn't preordained to allow? So far from invalidating the gospel, suffering of God's people actually signals that the sufferers really are God's people. That's one thing we've got going for us, (laughs) because we haven't reached glory yet. When you struggle with sin, that's a sign you are a Christian. When you're, I told the men on Thursday night, we had young men with us who came with their dads. Young men, if you grieve because when you sin, you've sinned against God first and foremost, that's not a sign you're not saved, that's a sign you are saved. Because the struggle will continue. And what you must do is entrust yourself to the finished work of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, which declares you as righteous. And from out of that, and in response of thankfulness to that, to his finished work, I want, therefore, to live my life in a manner worthy of the calling. Not to earn anything. So sufferers, for the sake of Christ, reveal that the consummation of the kingdom is ever nearer. It's getting closer and closer. Advancing history toward the kingdom's fulfillment of a new heaven and a new earth, but it won't come without the suffering of God's people in Christ who share in his life, death, and resurrection. And ultimately, we'll share in his glory. Yes. So the point is for us, Taking the gospel to people, be it across the office, across the street, or across the ocean, is any any more significant than the other, by the way? No. No. Taking the gospel across the office, across the street, across the ocean ordinarily requires sacrifice and suffering and sometimes persecution and accusation fact, all of which is part of God's magnificent strategy for completing the Great Commission by way of the unstoppable gospel. We see it here in Acts. We see it to this very day. Never forget it. Amen? So the glory of the Christian life, beloved, is that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Paul is beaten. It doesn't matter. Whether he's in prison, it doesn't matter. He's about to be scourged. We'll see it next Lord's Day. Guess what? It doesn't matter. The gospel makes it to Rome through Paul. It had already made it there, by the way. We believe he wrote Romans from Corinth. He's already been in Corinth, but now he's going to go there and and visit the church that the Holy Spirit Established. So if the state is against you, if the culture is against you, if your own family is against you, does it matter? It doesn't really matter. Is it painful? Oh, yes. I got a spear in my soul every day I wake up. But it doesn't matter with regard to his will being carried out for his glory and the good. Of his people. So if you're sharing in his sufferings right now in this life, beloved, know this you will indeed share in his resurrection and you will share in his glory, and we will have all eternity to enjoy the benefits thereof, but not until then. Amen. For now, we live by faith. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Paul's life. We thank you for the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one Paul preached the one we preach. Help us to do so by the power of your spirit for the glory of your name. Amen.